hundred times in the cosmic scales by four hours of exquisite bravery near the 38th parallel. She or he is the nurse who fought against futility and went to sleep sobbing every night for two solid years in Da Nang. He is the POW who went away one person and came back another, or didn't come back at all. He's the Quantico drill instructor who has never seen combat, but has saved countless lives by turning slouchy, no-account rednecks and gang members into Marines and teaching them to watch each other's backs. He is the parade-riding legionnaire who pins on his ribbons and medals with a prosthetic hand. He's the career quartermaster who watches the ribbons and medals pass him by. He's the three anonymous heroes in the Tomb of the Unknowns, whose presence at the Arlington National Cemetery must forever preserve the memory of all the anonymous heroes whose valor dies unrecognized with them on the battlefield or in the ocean's sunless deep. He is the old guy bagging groceries at the supermarket, palsy now and aggravatingly slow, who helped liberate a Nazi death camp and who wishes all day long that his wife were still alive to hold him when the nightmares come. He's an ordinary and yet an extraordinary human being, a person who offered some of his life's most vital years in the service of his country, and who sacrificed his ambitions so others would not have to sacrifice theirs. He is a soldier and a savior and a sword against the darkness, and he is nothing more than the finest, greatest testimony on behalf of the finest, greatest nation ever known. So remember, each time you see someone who has served our country, just lean over and say thank you. That's all most people need, and in most cases it will mean more than any medals they could have been awarded or were awarded. Two little words that mean a lot. Thank you. I just finished reading a book this afternoon called um, Citizen Soldiers by Stephen Ambrose. He wrote an excellent treatment of D-Day that came out, I think, four or five years ago. And this book's been out for about maybe a year. And it's just a, a, a great story of the soldiers, not the heroes, not, I mean, not the major generals, not the tactics or strategies of World War II, but stories about the men who fought in the, all along the way from Normandy all the way to, to Germany. And it's just incredible to read all the stories of the individual acts of heroism, all the things they had to deal with, all the struggles, fighting through the Battle of the Bulge, fighting through the Hurtgen Forest and all of the terrible winter. That was the harshest winter in 40 years that Europe experienced. And how cold they were and how, because at the upper levels, they decided they would probably be into Germany and the war over by Christmas. Uh, back in September, they stored all the heavy woolen uniforms, and their heavy trench coats and everything, put them all in storage. And so when winter hit and they were caught, not in Germany yet, having to fight the Battle of the Bulge, they just had summer weight uniforms. And here the temperature was sub-freezing and they didn't have what they needed. This little thing I was reading from concludes, it's the soldier, not the reporter, who has given us freedom of the press. It's the soldier, not the poet, who has given us freedom of speech. It's the soldier, not the campus organizer, who has given us the freedom to demonstrate. It's the soldier who salutes the flag, who serves beneath the flag, and whose coffin is draped by the flag, who allows the protester to burn the flag. Well, before we get started in studying God's Word tonight, let's bow our heads together, have a few moments of silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship, then we'll begin to look at God's Word. Father, we thank you for the wonderful privilege we have in this country as citizens of the United States of America where we experience still, in spite of all the things that we see going on around us, the things that we see that are crumbling, the problems that we see, we still have the greatest freedoms of any nation in history. We have the greatest privileges and the greatest opportunities, and the greatest of these is the freedom to worship you, the freedom to study your word and to proclaim it freely, the freedom to exercise our volition to 
pursue spiritual maturity and make our spiritual lives the highest priority for each of us. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in that resolve because we know from what we're studying in James that spiritual growth comes through endurance. We will continually be tested, have our volition tested to utilize the doctrine in our souls so that we can press on to spiritual maturity. And we do pray that you would strengthen our resolve that under the leadership, filling, ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we might do just that. Now, as we look at your word, we pray that you would continue to help us understand these vital doctrines related to loving you, and how that impacts our love for one another, our love in our families, between husband and wife, and how critical that is as part of our witness in the angelic conflict and the impact it has on our nation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> Open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James 1.13. It's where we stopped. I keep going back here because I don't want you to forget that we are going through James. Excuse me, James 1.12. We are studying through James, and as we go through these first introductory verses, the introduction of James extends down through verse uh, 20, 21. James is emphasizing various principles which are vital for us to understand if we are going to be able to persevere or endure, to hang in there in the midst of tests and trials. There are constantly going to be tests in our lives. Uh, one, because we are sinners and we have a sin nature. So there will be tests, there's going to be adversity, there's going to be suffering because as sinners we're going to make bad decisions we're going to suffer the consequences of our sin. Secondly, we live in a fallen world. As I was thinking in our conference this last week, I was reflecting on one of the things that Charlie was covering. I think it was Saturday night. I'm just going to put a little timeline up here and take a little change here. Uh-oh, that's a pen that's completely out of ink or dried up. Here's a timeline. Put a line here for the creation, restoration in Genesis, seven days, six, truly six days of restoration, one day of rest, the flood. We know from the little bit that Genesis 2 and 3 tells us, Genesis 2 tells us about what the topography was like, what the geography was like, what meteorology was like, and what the zoology was like in the garden that life was radically different before the fall. Radically different. Uh, it was, before the flood, it was, it was also radically different. Uh, it was affected some. You have the creation, then you have the, the fall. All animals were herbivorous. All, an, uh, all animals, therefore, had teeth, digestive system, everything that was, ra- they, they were That means they ate grass. That was it. They were not carnivorous. Um, Meteorologically, there was uh, no rain, no wind. Wind is vital in any meteorological system. So you don't have uh, rain. We'll put a minus sign there. Minus rain, minus wind, uh, minus snow and ice, hurricanes. You have none of those sorts of things. Um, Geographically, you have rivers diverging. Genesis chapter 2 says that one river flowed out of Eden and that separated then into four rivers. Now on the earth today, you find a lot of places, for example, where rivers converge. You have the Ohio River, the Missouri River, and the Mississippi River all come together and various other rivers flow into the Mississippi. But that's, that's converging. What you have, the picture you have in the Garden of Eden is this this divergence. So it's a, a radically different environment. And then in the, um, with the fall, things radically change. Every person is, I mean, the, the impact, nature is transformed. The, uh, for, for, now the rain and the wind, that doesn't change until after the flood. But the animals aren't herbivorous. There's violence in the animal kingdom. 
and there's going to be a change. The thorns and thistles are going to spring up. There's, there's a radical transformation that takes place in the environment. So the entire environment, as a result of Adam's sin at the fall, the entire environment of the earth has fallen. Nature has fallen. The animal kingdom has fallen. Plant kingdom has fallen. Mankind. Everything is impacted by that sinful decision of Adam. And what that means is that we now live in a world that is fallen. And when we talk about testing, we not only possess a sin nature inside of us, but we're living in a cosmic system. Inside the cosmic system that has been seriously, radically impacted by evil. So that things are not at all what they, what they ought to be. And in some ways we know that deep inside, just as Romans 1.18 tells us that we know in some way every human being from birth that there is the evidence within them that God exists. So when you get to Romans 8, it talks about how the whole creation is currently groaning under the curse of sin and that man is aware of this and, and, uh, and he is also, because of this pressure from living in a fallen cosmic system, is looking forward to to redemption for the the believers are looking forward to the redemption of that uh, of the cosmic system. So what we see is that internally we have a major problem with the sin nature. Externally we have a problem because we live in the cosmic system that is affected by evil, and then beyond that we have the angelic conflict, which these two may be passive. Sin nature can be active, also passives. Uh, the cosmic system can be active or passive to us. In that, and what I mean by passive is we're, it's not actively doing something, picking out you to pick on, but that a hurricane can hit any number of people, a tornado can hit any number of people, a blizzard comes down or ice storm, just wipe out any number of people. These are sort of active, passive types of activities. The angelic conflict, because you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a specific target. Somebody may have told you when um, when you first became a believer, they might have used a, you might have come met somebody with Campus Crusade. I never did like their little track. It's called How to Have a Happy, Happy and Wonderful Life. Of course, they leave out the fact that you will now become a target for Satan in the angelic conflict. But you, you become a target. So all of this is the source of adversity, and testing in life. And that is the, this is the thrust of James' epistle, is to teach us how to handle adversity and testing. From the scriptures, we have ten stress busters that we develop theologically, extrapolated from the study of scripture. These are techniques or skills that we use, that every believer can use in order to advance to spiritual maturity. These start with the simple one of confession, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me show you what you're doing. Here you are. This is your soul made up of your self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. When you are protecting your soul, the Bible uses the analogy that God is our our fortress. He builds a fortification around our soul. This is it in a very rough drawing. We're in the middle. There's an entranceway into that fortification, which is the use of 1 John 1, 9. And as we come to Bible class, week after week, day after day, you learn. Isaiah gives us the principle in Isaiah 14. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line, precept upon precept. You start to put things together. You learn this little piece of doctrine, and you put a brick in here. Then you learn a little larger piece of doctrine related to grace orientation. You put that in there. You use another, a larger brick here related to doctrinal orientation. You learn about the infallibility of God's Word, and you realize how important God's Word is to your life, and that is the bedrock for everything in your life. 
And then you learn a little bit more about the person and work of Jesus Christ, and so you get a little hint of occupation with Christ. And then you learn some things about faith and trust and some promises, and you begin to pour some mortar that holds those bricks together, and that mortar is a faith rest drill. And so you're building a wall, and you begin to erect this protection around your soul. And faith, faith rest drill is that mortar that holds all these little bricks in place. And that's the concept here. The more I go through this introduction to James, we get a reference to these, these, uh, these stress busters. Uh, forgiveness, confession and forgiveness, the filling of the Holy Spirit, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. We saw those two. saw grace orientation in relation to humility in verses 8 through 10. We saw doctrinal orientation in relation to verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Then you have, uh, excuse me, I've left out the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill is in there in relation to verse 6. Let him ask in faith without any doubting. Then you come to the, the uh, fifth or sixth, which is our personal sense of our eternal destiny. This is so important, something very, very few Christians get to, and that's understanding you have an eternal destiny, an eternal position and responsibility in the kingdom of God that will go on for eternity, and you're in boot camp right now. And the only way you're going to be prepared for your position and for what God has for you in eternity is by successfully passing all the tests of boot camp. So what you're going through in time is to prepare you for eternity. Eternity is not going to be sitting around on a cloud strumming a harp. In eternity there will be millions and perhaps billions of people we will rule over the angels. As we're going to see as in a little bit when we get into Scripture, even paradise, even in the Garden of Eden, there's responsibility, there's job assignments, role responsibilities, there's things to do. Heaven's not going to be sitting around just enjoying things, becoming eternal couch potatoes. There are going to be jobs to do. There's going to be responsibility. There's going to be a hierarchy of responsibility rulership, reigning in the kingdom. And all of this is going to be dependent upon who gets prepared. And the basic principle there is that God uses prepared people. God does not use prepared people, so we are in the process of getting prepared right now. Then we go into the love triplex. Keep running out of ink. Running out of ink and running out of a voice. Oh, well. Love triplex. Three parts to the love triplex. First part is personal love for God. Second part is impersonal love for mankind. And third part is occupation with Christ. And that leads us over into the final part of the, the block, which is our inner happiness. Inner happiness is the goal of James' instruction. His initial command in James 1-2 is to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. How do we do that? I think that's what this whole epistle is all about. He's going to give principle after principle after principle so that you can grow. Because this takes maturity. You don't learn everything you need to know to be able to experience that tranquility and contentment and calm that is ours, that is beyond rational thought, that is ours, that comes at that moment that we are trusting Christ in the midst of trials and we can sail through. I was reminded... Of this, when we, I uh, one example of this on, I, I forget who made reference to it at the conference, but it's that great hymn, uh, when it starts off, when peace like a river, uh, what is that hymn? Yeah, it's Well with My Soul. H.G. Spafford wrote that. I don't know if you know the story behind that, but he was, he was a, an entrepreneur in, in Chicago. And he had done very, very well, and um, so he had, he had provided, bought tickets on a ship liner to go across to England, take his wife and two daughters over. And as the ship the ship left, just before the ship left, I think it was when they had the Great Fire in Chicago, and so he had to go back to Chicago to check, take care of his business holdings, and <clears throat> his wife and two daughters left, and halfway across the Atlantic. The, the ship was sunk. I think it hit an iceberg or something like that, something like the Titanic disaster, and the ship went down. And his wife wired him two words, 
saved alone. Both daughters were lost in that tragic shipwreck. So he immediately made plans to go to England, came to New York, caught the next liner that went over, and had the captain notify him when they reached the spot where that accident had occurred. And there, as he watched the sea billows roll, he wrote that hymn, which is a great testimony to the fact that as he was focused on the realities of Jesus Christ, the consequence of that was peace, peace in his soul, that no matter how the adversities of life may roll over us like huge waves, there will be stability and peace and contentment in our souls, in our happiness. So we're studying these different skills, these different stress buster techniques as we go through the passage. And we're down at the end of verse 12, which says, Blessed is a man who perseveres while being tested, perseveres, endures, who hangs in there. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. That's personal sense of your internal destiny. We're moving towards a time when we will be evaluated and rewarded on the basis of what happens in our spiritual life here on earth. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Not all believers love the Lord. That is clear from this passage. Not everyone will receive the crown of life. Not everyone will pass the tests. Not every believer loves the Lord. Some do, some don't. A lot of people talk about it. Very few people understand loving the Lord, mostly because very few people understand what love is. Now, we learned a principle this last week in our study that if you're going to say something about any subject whatsoever, if you really want to understand a subject as a believer, then your starting point must always be the Word of God you must first go to the Scriptures and find out what God has to say about that subject. Otherwise, no matter what you learn about it, it may always be cast in the wrong framework. It may all be always, always have a little bit of a disorientation to it. And the problem that happens when we discuss the subject of love is that people come to it with a boatload of presuppositions from their own experience as to what love is. And they think of love in terms of human emotions and in terms of their human experiences they think of it in often in sentimental ways often in shallow ways often in uh, uh, these ways that don't do justice to God whatsoever and because they are impugning God's character by attributing human love to him they have real problems understanding basic doctrines like eternal security because for them love is something that is transient and it's emotional. One day it's up, and the next day it's down. And it's based on the the uh, uh, approbation given to the object of love, and on their behavior, and how they look, and how they act, and what they do. It's very conditional. They can't conceive of God having uh, any other kind of love, and so they have real problems whenever they confess, whenever they commit sins. With how God can still love them? How can God still love me when I've been so bad? I went out on a bender last night and I got drunk and who knows what I did and how can God still love me? And because they don't understand love, they're trying to start with man over here, start with with a human being or a human concept of love with human viewpoint. They start here and try to understand God. They never understand love. You always have to have your starting point with the Word of God. So we have to look at Scriptures and see how the Scripture talks about love. Now, in English, we only have one word for love. But the Greeks had several words, and the Scriptures used two. The ver- first is the verb phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O. This relates more to that sort of love which is between, between friends. It has more of an emotional overtone to it. It indicates some... Uh, level of rapport and closeness. In fact, God never, in the passages in Scripture where it talks about God's love in terms of phileo love, He never has as its object of God's phileo love unbelievers. That's one reason why you go to that passage that everybody misuses in Revelation 3.21, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and 
and it lets me come in, I'll come in and eat supper with him and dine with him. And uh, They use that for salvation. And the problem is, in the verse before that, it talks about how God has phileo love for these people. So they're already believers. You write letter to, that's in the letter to the church at Laodicea, and God says, I love you, phileo love. Well, that's only, he only has phileo love for believers. So these are believers. It's not a salvation verse. It has to do with, with fellowship. It has to do with using 1 John 1, 9 and, and confession. The second word is agapao. Agapao. A-G-A-P-P-A-O. Or its noun form, agape. A-G-A-P-E. Now the thing is, when you look at agapao love or agape love, that's the word that's used everywhere of God's love from John 3.16, Romans 5.12, passages like John 13.34 when Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. John 15.12, my command, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. To passages like Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then it goes on later on in that passage in about verse 28, talking about husbands, love your wives as you love yourselves. And in Ephesians 5.28, love your wives as you love your own bodies. So, this one word, agape, covers a lot of territory. We're going to describe that territory by drawing a circle. That circle represents agape love. Now, within that circle, as we look at how the Scriptures describe God's love, we have to remember another principle. This, too, is clear from the Scripture. We have to look at the character of God. character of God has as part of its makeup perfect righteousness, absolute justice, and love. These three attributes, as well as all of God's attributes, always work in harmony. There's never any conflict. There's never any disagreement. The righteousness of God establishes the standard of God's character. The justice of God represents the application of that standard. Love represents His motivation. Now, God cannot have fellowship or rapport or an intimate sort of love with a creature who does not meet his absolute standard of perfect righteousness. So if you have a creature over here who is minus R, God's perfect R is incompatible with minus R. So therefore, when the scripture says, for God so loved the world, that is a different aspect of love than when the scripture is talking about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Because on the one hand, (coughs) in this relationship between God and fallen man, there's no compatibility. I hope that in marriage there is compatibility between husband and wife. Now, there may be times of disagreement and harshness, and that's when you need to use impersonal love. So what we see here, and I think I'm going to try to just diagram this by putting a line through the middle of this circle that the foundation the foundation for agape love is that which we call impersonal love impersonal love is defined as a love that is based on the character of the one who is doing the loving not on the character or the looks or the attributes or behavior of the one who is loved Because God is the one who is doing the loving in salvation, this is absolute stability and never changes. Nothing that the creature can do can ever change that love. That's the foundation. On top of that is built personal love. Personal love that does not have a foundation on impersonal love is very shaky. and won't stand up because as soon as something happens, something drastic happens, something changes... 
then that love is threatened. It must be built on that. Now, we're studying the concept of personal love for God because that's the subject of this verse. That's what's referred to here in verse 12. And we're there because it's something that is rarely understood today. And if we are going to be pursuing or advancing in the spiritual life, then what we have to understand is what personal love for God is. Now, I'm building and developing this over the last two or three weeks, and I just don't want you to get lost. I know I'm doing a lot of review here, but some of this I'm just kind of plunging away in my own thinking, trying to develop some of these concepts out. In personal love for God, we've seen two things that are commanded in the Scriptures. One is that we are to have an an extreme devotion to God, such that He is the highest priority in our life. We are to commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. With every bit of energy that we have, we are to devote ourselves to the Lord. And this is in Matthew 22:37, as quoted from the Old Testament, Matthew 22:37. Second thing, this is very active. This is a very active form of love. Secondly, we have a more passive aspect to this, and that has to do with fear or respect. Fear or respect. That has to do with, with Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, I'm going to make some moves here in terms of application. We have these two aspects of personal love for God. So, if whenever we talk about personal love, personal love... Excuse me. Personal love involves devotion on the one hand and fear and respect on the other hand. When we talk about our personal love for God, we're supposed to have devotion for Him and respect. Under the category of devotion, I said that I went over several categories. I want to drill these into you. First of all, it's, it's initiating. It takes the first step. God the Father took the first step for us in His love as demonstrated by making a plan for our salvation from eternity past. It's initiating. It is aggressive. It, try, it pushes beyond any obstacles, advancing with confidence and boldness. It's characterized by humility. Go to passages like uh, Matthew or Mark 10:45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Philippians chapter 4. Jesus came; He took on the form of a servant. It is intense. That means it is goal-oriented, focused on the goal, which is the pursuit of salvation. Steadfastly loyal. That means the steadfast brings in the idea that, that this devotion is what supplies the motivation for endurance through the tough times. What's the theme of James? It's endurance. Steadfast loyalty. Consecration. Set apart to the task. We saw this with Jesus Christ, that he is set apart to the task. Now, in the passive side, respect. Well, finally, the last one was dedication, under devotion, dedication. On the passive side, fear and respect includes response, responding. Our passive love, we are to respond to God, to His Word. We are to make Bible doctrine the highest priority in our lives, and we are to continually be learning it. Deference, in terms of our personal love for God... In terms of our personal love for God, we are to submit to His judgment, constantly seeking the will of God, determining what it is, and making that our our decision. It includes admiration. As we come to know God, we admire Him for all that He has done for us, and we become awed by the complexity and wonder of what God has done. In terms of honor, honor, the next category seeks to bestow glory on God who did so much on our behalf. Esteem. 
we esteem him. We elevate him to a, a high level of prestige and priority. There is consideration, thoughtful consideration of God. Based upon God's desires for our lives, we think about God's word and we meditate on it. We think about how doctrine impacts the way we think, how we think, and what we're doing with our lives. And then there is the last word, partiality. That means we have a bias towards God, a prejudice in his favor. He has special fondness because he is the object of our love. So personal love for God under devotion, we see that it is initiating. We need to take initiative in pursuing God. It's up to our volition to be a Bible class. We need to be aggressive in doing that. It needs to be humility because humility is critical to teachability. And that if we're going to grow and learn, we have to have humility. We have to be willing to submit our thoughts, our ideas, our past training to what the Word of God says. There needs to be an intensity to it. Is there an intensity to your love for God? Loyalty. That means we make decisions for God instead of for ourselves or yielding to temptation. Consecration. We're set apart to God. We're dedicated to Him. So all of these factors, we've seen how they relate in some ways to the Lord Jesus Christ, but fundamentally they relate to our personal love for God. Now, as we look at this, I want to take it a step further. Put a little diagram down here at the cross. Two things are happening. Ephesians 5.25, let's turn there. Ephesians 5.25, we see a very important commandment. Excuse me, Ephesians 5.25, yes. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself as a substitute for her, the Greek preposition there means substitution. Husbands, love your wives. That's a command. You must love your wives in the same way, comparison, that Christ loved the church. Now, two things are going on here. First of all, there is impersonal love at the cross. Impersonal love because man is minus R. So there's impersonal love directed towards man, and that's motivating Jesus Christ to go to the cross and die as our substitute. Secondly, there is personal love for God motivating him, because while he is on the cross, during those three hours, all the sins of humanity are imputed to him, and all of, during that time, God is going to judge Jesus Christ for every one of those sins. He is going, through, going, going to go through the most incredible torment you can ever imagine, because he is perfect righteousness, and he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And he is motivated to do that because of what? His personal love for God, devotion to God, initiating grace in eternity past, uh, aggressiveness in, in taking on the role of uh, kenosis and becoming a man, the perfect humanity and, and perfect deity, humi- humility, intensity, steadfast loyalty, consecration. All of these are part of that personal love for God that's motivating him on the cross. Then we take it a step further. He's got impersonal love, but that's directed towards what? All mankind. But for Romans, and that's the doctrine of unlimited atonement. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he, the world, the whole world, not just a few people, the whole world that he gave his unique son that whosoever believes on him, whosoever, anybody, and then First Timothy 4.10 says that God, who is the Savior of all men, all men, but especially, notice how it makes this upper story, almost upper story, lower story distinction. The Savior of all men here, but especially, there's something special going on, especially believers. So, at the cross, Jesus is viewing all mankind through impersonal love. All mankind. But in his omniscience, he knows that in the plan of God, God is going to be calling out a unique body in the church age known as the church, and that will be the bride of Christ. And in anticipation of that, Jesus Christ, looking at believers as his future bride, 
in his omniscience is exercising personal love. That's why in this passage Paul is making the analogy between husbands husbands here to wives as Christ to the church. Because it's not talking about Christ to unbelievers who are that would be just impersonal love and he's saying more than husbands you need to have impersonal love for your wives that's a rather dull could be a rather dull passionless existence if all you had was impersonal love for your wives there's something more going on here and it brings in this idea of of a personal love That's the point of the analogy. In the same way that Christ has this personal love for the church. That's why I've taken the time to go back to passages and to relate to passages and doctrines in Christ's work as to why Christ goes to the cross for the church and how that relates to his personal love for the church and how these attributes then impact, husbands, your responsibilities within the home. But this is difficult and we have to have some background for it so let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and understand the divine framework for marriage if you're going to understand anything about love you have to start with where we're going to start second hour Sunday morning with John 3:16 if you're going to say anything about love to anybody you have to start understanding love by understanding God's love if you're going to say anything about marriage you want to understand anything about the role of the husband or the wife, then you have to go to Genesis chapter 1. First thing, Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God... <coughs> can't even read through Scripture. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So what we see right here is that God creates the human race. There's male and there's female, and they're both image bearers. They both have the image of God. That makes them equal in terms of their their position as a creature towards God. They are both equally image bearers. They are both equally image bearers. They are both equal in terms of humanity. Turn the page. Let's look at chapter 2. Now, you will always find, and I'll just throw this in. It's different from our subject, but a little free of charge comment on Genesis 1 and 2. You're always going to hear somebody, and even people, even a few people who claim to have some kind of academic training in Hebrew or something, say, well, Genesis 1 gives you six or seven days of creation, and Genesis 2 talks about the, uh, gives you a different account of creation and talks about how, how man is formed from the dust of the ground, and that these are conflicting accounts. So Genesis 1 is talking about one God, Genesis 2 is talking about another God. The problem is that person is ignorant of the Hebrew mind. I can go to passage after passage, in the Old Testament, where the general way the Hebrews thought was they gave you the big overview here, and then they come back in, and they pick out the section they want to deal with, and then they come in and they give you the expanded uh, development of that one particular detail. And that's what you have in Genesis chapter 1. You get the overview of the whole creation week, and then in chapter 2 you come back and you look at one part of that and expand it out in detail. Now, I want to look down at John, I mean, at Genesis 2.15 to see what happens to man. We're going to specifically focus on the man here and the impact of the fall on you men, on we men. The Lord took the man, Adam, and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Now, we have two interesting words here in the Hebrew. The word that is translated cultivate is the cow infinitive construct of avad. And that's spelled 
A-B-A-D. And it means to serve, to slave. The noun form would refer to a slave. To work. You mean there was work in paradise? Yes. There was work in paradise. There was responsibility. That's what I'm getting at. This relates to Adam's, uh, to the first divine institution, number one, which I call individual responsibility. Adam was given responsibility in the garden to work the garden, to serve God there. He was to serve God by working and developing the garden and taking the basic things that God had given him in creation and then developing it in the image of God just as God created Adam too was in the image of God to create. He is set over creation to rule and reign creation. So he has responsibility and he has tasks. And God gives him, as part of his responsibility, a warning related to the tree. Verse 17, he can eat of any tree, but not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then verse 18, God says it's not good for the man, the male, to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is the first indication that we get that the man's job, he is the primary worker. He is the primary worker. He's the one who carries the load of responsibility in the garden. But he can't do it all by himself. God says it's not good for him to be alone, so he gets an assistant. He gets a helper. Now, a helper is designed to do what? By the very nature of the word. We don't have to go into Hebrew to figure this out, folks. This is not difficult. The helper is designed to help the first person, the man, do what God told him to do. The helper is not saying, okay, that's great, you have this job and this task, and I'm going to go do this, and we're going to go in two different directions. No, the role of the helper is to help the man do the job that God called him to do and that God gave him to do. So this is where we begin to see that, that, that there are two people here and they are going to be a team. Partnership in marriage, I think that may not be the right nuance because partnership indicates almost a bilateral equality of everything. I prefer to use the word team. What we have is a team that's placed in the garden. And that team is given certain responsibilities. Player number one is responsible to take care of the garden, to work, to till it, and fulfill his responsibilities. And since he can't do it all by himself, he's given player number two to come alongside and help him in performing that task. But they both need to be oriented to a task. Now, there's something else going on here. Player number one is placed in the garden with this particular test. Why is that test there? That test is there because before any of this ever happened, we don't know how long before, but sometime back in eternity past, God had created a a race of rational creatures called angels. The highest of those angels was a creature called Satan. Satan, or Lucifer initially, which meant light bearer, and Lucifer was the most beautiful, the most intelligent, the most uh, talented of all of God's creatures. In fact, he had the highest role of all the angels and was set over the angels. And God gave him uh, tremendous responsibilities. But he began to look at himself in the mirror, say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the prettiest angel of them all? And it always came back Lucifer. So he wanted to have, uh, he wanted to have all the worship of the angels. And if you, we don't have time for it, but if you look at the Hebrew in Ezekiel 28, it indicates that he is also the worship leader. He almost serves like a high priest to all of the angels. And he gets tired of being the one who is the intermediate, the mediator between the angels and God. And he wants all that worship and glory for himself. So Isaiah 14 gives us the five I will. Satan wants to be God. Lucifer wants to be God and he falls. And then there's a big trial. A number of the angels went with him. One third of the angels went with him. 
and there is this enormous trial that takes place in eternity past. And God, who's the supreme court of heaven, God executes a judgment which is eternity in the lake of fire. And Satan, we, we deduce from Scripture, fires a charge. How can a loving God send his creatures to heaven? So God says, okay, I'm going to demonstrate why all of this is important, the implications of humility as opposed to your arrogance, the significance of service, the significance of grace, and I'm going to show my justice and righteousness, and we're going to do it through a test case called man, and I'm going to take this planet that you've ruined, and I'm going to set it out here and create a universe and place man there in the garden, and he's going to be the test case, and we're going to see how fair and righteous and just I am. That's the background. So issue number one is going to be the test of the number one player, how he responds to the test. There's another issue, folks. It's a team game. It's a team game. And the team fell. The team failed. So what happens is that not only do you have issues that relate to the individuals because of their fall, but you also have issues to play out in human history related to the behavior of the team. In the Old Testament, all you have is the divine institution of marriage, which is related to Believer and unbeliever alike. But the stakes go up when you get to the church age. Because you get new revelation directed to believers in the New Testament related to marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5 and in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3, you get new information which says and tells us that there is going to be higher expectations of church age believers in marriage because the first marriage failed, and we're not only going to demonstrate through church-age believers that, that uh, God is gracious and just in all that He does, and we're going to demonstrate all of these principles through the unique spiritual life of the church age, but we're going to do it through this new team called a Christian marriage. And it's that Christian marriage that is, has a critical role to play in, as witnesses in the angelic conflict. So, a Christian marriage, any marriage, first of all, any marriage is made up of one male and one female. God did not create a marriage for two people of the same sex. Christian marriage is made up of a, a male believer and a female believer. But they've got problems to overcome as a result of the fall. And we have to go back to the original design and the original uh, situation in the garden and how God designed the role for the male and the female and how God created them if we're ever going to solve the problems created by the fall. God created them male and female and the male has a male soul and the female has a female soul. And the male soul is designed to be an initiator. He is the leader. He is the responsible one. And the female soul is the responder. Now, earlier when I talked about testing, I brought out the point that sin had a universal damaging effect on every aspect of creation. We know, we look around and we know a lot of guys, boy, they couldn't initiate their way out of a wet paper bag. Right? Some of you women dated some of those guys. And, and guys, we know that there are some women who couldn't respond their way out of a wet paper bag. And we tried never to date those kind of women. That's because everything's been affected by the curse. Everything's been affected by the fall. If you're going to have a radical transformation in the physiological structure of a lion's digestive tract so that he can no longer be gramnivorous and can only be carnivorous, what kind of effect do you think it's going to have in the realm of the soul? The souls were damaged. They're still in the image of God, but they're corrupted. The souls of male and female are damaged and impacted by the fall. So that God's original design, where man is the initiator and the woman is responder, is now all out of order and all askew. And we're going to see this in the next chapter. Turn the page 
to Genesis chapter 3 and we'll pick up with the curse. We'll pick up with the curse in verse 14. We'll just get the context to read through it. God is outlining for Adam and Eve the consequences of the fall. And the serpent as well. He's going to address each one. We're not too concerned here with the impact on the serpent, but we'll mention it just so it's familiar to you for background in future studies. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. Go on your belly shall you go. So there's a radical zoological transformation right there. The serpent was different, functioned different, looked different, acted different, and walked upright and talked prior to the fall. Did other animals talk? I don't know. Somehow, somebody may say, you really believe that? That's what the Scripture says. Eve, didn't, Eve was not taken aback when the serpent started to talk to her and say, hey, honey, come here. She didn't say, wait, what are you doing talking? There are big changes that took place. It was a different world. That's why I like that model of the one individual Charlie referred to, who I believe was a teacher down at... Um, um, the Naval Academy mathematics professor saying that physiological laws, laws of physics, were probably radically changed by the impact of the flood. So if we're going to try to use today's standards in any way, shape, or form to figure out what was going on before the flood, we may just be completely wrong. I think the world was, if we went back there, were transported back to the pre-flood environment, we would think we were on a science fiction trip with the Starship Enterprise. And we were on some other planet in some other galaxy far, far away. It would be that different. So the, the serpent is now going to be, crawl on his belly the, and does show you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that's hostility, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Her seed is going to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, shall bruise you on the head. That's a fatal wound. That's what occurred on the cross. You shall bruise him on the heel. That's just a temporary wounding. That was Satan's attempt to destroy Jesus Christ on the cross. So this is the first prophecy of salvation. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Notice, she's now going to have pain in childbirth. He doesn't say now you're going to have childbirth and it's going to be painful. He says I'm going to multiply your pain. See, God told them to be fruitful and multiply back in the garden. No pain would have been associated with it, but they apparently didn't last long enough, or God in His grace restrained them from having children or prevented it fertility from taking place, waiting for the test to occur. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. So now women are reminded every time they have a child and go through labor of the woman's uh, fall. In pain you shall bring forth children. And then comes the next phrase that is poorly taught, poorly understood from the Hebrew, yet your desire shall be for your husband. And so often that is taught as sexual desire, that the woman, when you're in the right kind of marriage with the right man, that uh, you will have this kind of sexual desire and passion for your husband. And if that's not there, you know, the implication is that if that's not there, well, maybe you just don't have the right guy, or maybe you're just not spiritually astute enough to figure it out. That's not what that's talking about at all, ladies. We're going to jump on you for a little bit here in background for as we, where we go next week. This is the Hebrew word teshuka. Looks like this in the Hebrew. T e s h u k a h. It's only used a couple of times in the Bible, and one very illuminating place in which it's used is just probably on the next page, chapter four. Chapter 4, verse 7. Cain is just madder than a hornet with his brother because he's getting the, all of the approval from God for his sacrifice. So the Lord comes to Cain. The Lord confronts Cain with his sin, and where, this mental attitude sin, and where it's going to lead him. And he says, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? In verse 6, and then in verse 7 he says... If you do well, that is, if you obey me and give me the right kind of sacrifice, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin. Sin is crouching at the door. The image is of a hungry lion or a wolf 
waiting to pounce. Sin is crouching at the door. Your sin nature seeks to devour, control, and dominate your life. Okay? Sin is crouching at the door and what? It's desire. What word do you think that is in the Hebrew? Teshuka. It means a dominating, controlling desire. That's the image that we have here. Desire is for you. Ladies, as a result of the curse, you had a soul that was a responder. And because of the curse, that's changed to where you want to dominate and control. You want to be the boss in the marriage and wear the pants. That's sort of a natural inclination. You don't want to be a team player anymore. You want to be a partner. And he shall rule over you. Now, that's the other part of the problem that sets up the war between the sexes is because of the sin nature, you're going to want to control everything, and so does he. This word for rule is not a loving kind of tender authority rule like you have in a Christian marriage that's operating on doctrine. This is a dominating rule. This is the war between the sexes. Verse 17. Then to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, my, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, he had to work before, didn't he? He had to serve and till the soil. He had to cultivate it. Abad. He was working. He was serving. But it was a joy. It was a thrill. It was exciting. It was creativity. He was going places and there's no resistance. There's no frustration. There's no difficulty. It's just pure, 150% unadulterated pleasure to do what he was doing before the fall. But now there's frustration that's going to be built into the system. There's hardship. There's obstacles. There's difficulty. Cursed is the ground because of you in what? In toil. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. There's going to be difficulty, resistance, hostility. Thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, responsibility shifts from being something that is joyful to something that is toil. It's difficult. We don't like toil and difficult. We don't like to deal with things we can't control, so... The woman wants to dominate up here, and the man has a tendency to want to avoid responsibility. See, what happens, what we see here, as a result of the fall, is a, 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 the curse of sin is that the male and female, in terms of their original divine intended roles, want to reverse them. Under the sin nature, the man wants to be the passive responder because man, to go do what I need to do is the active leader in the home, the one who's leading the charge. There's a lot of resistance and hostility out there, and it's toil and it's sweat, and I don't want to do that. And the woman says, I'll be the, I'll be the team leader. That's what I want to do. And that, if you want to understand anything the New Testament says about the role of women and men in the church, in marriage, or anything, Paul always goes to Genesis 2 and 3. He always goes here. Why? Because you have to understand what, ha what the, the impact of sin on the different members of the team. If you're going to understand why we have the problems we have in the marriages we have and what we have to do about it. And the only solution begins at the cross. And it's only by coming to grips with, the, with what happens at the cross and the grace of God which underlies our our, our perceptions of impersonal love and personal love, can we go forward in the Christian life? So we have to understand that, that the solution to reversing the curse is grace. Grace is what ha exemplified by what happens at the cross. Let's go back to our passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Well, our time's just about up, and so is my voice. Next week we'll come back, and we're going to look at Ephesians 5, and we're going to cover the doctrine of the dance. You won't want to miss the doctrine of the dance. Because the doctrine of the dance is going to help you understand how it all works. So let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Father, we thank you for our time studying your word today and seeing how these things do impact and explain so much of what we deal with each and every day and how these things explain uh, 
some of the tensions in our marriages and the difficulties we have and, and how you've provided the solution because from eternity past you knew that all of these things would be and yet you have given us everything we need to, to reverse the impact of, of our sin natures and the impact of the curse in order to exemplify in not only our individual lives but in our marriages everything you intended in the first marriage as, as, a, as a testimony of your grace and your power in the angelic conflict. So, Father, give us that, that uh, intensity we need. Help us to understand these doctrines that they can motivate us from our personal love for you to pursue complete obedience in all of these areas that not only our lives but our marriages will be a tremendous witness for you in the angelic conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.